Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. With Benelin on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, you probably know somebody who has a virus or perhaps you have one at the moment. I'll be meeting a pharmacist who will talk us through the recent stats at the moment, how you can look after yourself and one of the suggestions she's making to take the pressure off the Buckling Health System. And I'll also be joined by Transformation Specialist Yolanda Coombs to talk about what it really takes to make a change. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I thought that was a bit of a strange week. It didn't feel right to continue with the Christmas consumption and the resting, but it didn't feel quite right to rev up the engines to full throttle either. So I proceeded with caution somewhere in between. I did have a lovely Christmas, lots of fun, food, walks and rest. So like I always say after a good holiday, there's no point in going away for that week or two weeks or whatever and then dreading getting back to normality. You have to take the energy that you got during that time and try and bring it back into your everyday. But maybe we'll start that next week. I am still 100% behind not being hard on yourself at the start of a new year and ripping away large swathes of your habits to better yourself. I'm into goal setting and bringing in some change with the turn of a new year, but I always think it has to come from a nourishing over a punishing motivation. And I've been taking advice from the interview that I had with Fiona Brennan. It was on the January 1st episode and thinking about how I want to feel throughout the year and what's my intention. Now, I've loads of things personally and professionally to get sorted this year. But the word I keep coming back to is performance and how can I perform at my best as a wife, as a mum, as a friend and in work and what do I need to do to facilitate that. And speaking of performance, I went to the Nutrition Research Centre in Waterford this week. Professor John Nolan from there has been a guest on the show a couple of times. First time he was on, he was talking about the importance of standards in supplements and more recently about how he and his teams have discovered and patented a supplement for brain health. He was talking about carotenoids. He talks a lot about carotenoids. You wouldn't want to play a drinking game with him where you'd have to take a shot every time he said it or you'd never function. And basically, I digress, carotenoids are found in colourful foods and They're like a chemical and they have a a huge importance in brain function. He and his team have a series of tests, which I took, um, and I'm going to work with them over six months to see if I can improve my score on the carotenoids present in my system, which was pretty good as it is. And I really hope that I can begin to share very much achievable ways of living for optimal health that merely focus on things like eating plenty of colourful veg. I don't live like a disciplined athlete, I absolutely assure you. I learned so much in the afternoon, I'm still downloading and distilling it all. But when you look at the health service crisis that's happening in our country at the moment, it's endeavours like this that are going to be part of the solution. Because what we have at the minute now is a sick care system. We wait until we get sick and then we seek treatment and the numbers are too high for the system to cope. We keep hearing about how difficult it is for people waiting on trolleys and on wait lists and it is indeed horrific, but it is so too for the people working within it. I think it's important we begin to arm people with the right information, empowering them to take as much control as they can over their own health without any guilt and shame around when it goes wrong. 
And when they can't, we need to give them access to the tools that will enable them to live well. It sounds idealistic even as I say it, but it is possible. And just know there are incredible people across the world doing incredible work and research to make healthcare work better. We need a complete overhaul of the system we have. And we also need to look at the meagre 6% of the overall health budget being spent on mental health because without support here when it's needed, people can't be physically well. And on that test I went for, I mentioned before Christmas, it was a mole that was a regular and needed a biopsy. I'm happy to say I got the all clear and felt very lucky and grateful to do that. Health is indeed your wealth and it is so important to get checked if something is niggling you, even with all you hear about the health system at the minute. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. But let's talk about the healthcare system at the moment. People are being urged to explore all other options before heading to a hospital for treatment. Parents are urged to keep kids out of school and childcare with any symptoms. And there wasn't a family in the country that didn't know somebody who spent Christmas sick in bed. Sheena Mitchell is an award-winning pharmacist behind Wonder Baba, a website, social media and podcast with practical advice. And she joins me in studio now. Hello, Sheena. Hi, thanks for having me. So Sheena, what is going on? It it does seem like there's just a hell of a lot of viruses around at the moment. Are we hyper aware of them now in a post-COVID world? Or did our immune systems take a hammering during all the lockdowns and are we getting sicker than ever before? Yeah, so I suppose it's probably an element of all of that. So absolutely, we're more aware and we're better, I suppose, at being aware of infection prevention. But ultimately, we are actually facing serious increases in the level of of viruses circulating. So, for example, we had a record breaking um, season for RSV where it peaked really early and it's still quite high. So while the numbers have slightly stabilised, they've stabilised at a very high level. And that is the virus that caused bronchiolitis in young children and is the leading cause of hospitalisations in children from, you know, under four. Um, So that has put a huge burden on our healthcare system. We also then um, have flu. So we're used to flu and we also, I suppose, are used to using the term flu to describe non-influenza type illness like colds and things like that. But actual flu where you get, you know, the full body aches, fever, malaise, so you're feeling really, really unwell. That viral, that family of viruses are circulating at an extremely high level. Just to put it in context over the last few weeks, so using week 51, so using it by calendar week. So the second last week in December, um, that's the kind of the latest figure that I have in front of me. In week 51, pre-COVID in 2019, we had 408 cases, whereas this year we had 2,329. So it's a mixture of both. There's absolutely an awful lot of viruses going around. And that's, you know, without even mentioning the high levels of COVID. And I'm throwing in all these um, theories as somebody without a, a medical background that it's because we were all away for so long and now our immune systems are taking a real hammering. We don't know that yet, do we? We don't know enough about the pandemic and the effects just yet. Even the epidemiologists who are looking into this properly, they need more time. Yeah. And look, I'm not an epidemiologist, um, but from looking at all of the stats and all of the information and all of the narrative around it over the last several months, I think it's clear that, you know, children normally would contract RSV before they're two. 
Okay, so there's a whole cohort of children who never had the opportunity to catch RSV and be exposed to it. So they have no immunity as a result. Some children, when they catch it, it presents like a cold. They just get the runny nose and it doesn't develop into formal bronchiolitis, which is the lower respiratory tract infection and causes all that inflammation. Um, but they would still have been exposed at some level. Whereas now you've got this huge cohort of kids who have never had any exposure. So because they weren't mixing, because they weren't in creche, they weren't in school, they weren't on play dates. So ultimately, we do have a much more vulnerable immune bank, basically. And I suppose in terms of flu, every year different variants circulate and some years the same variants and mutations are circulating as last year. So if you think that over two years we had zero flu. Now in twenty in 2020 there was actually no cases recorded. Last year the weekly figures were like 8, 15. You know, there were small numbers. It was there but it was very minimal because we were still doing a lot of infection pre- prevention. Whereas now all of those people, you know, from, you know, the over 65s, every single age group, they didn't have any exposure to flu. And as a result now, we're very susceptible to every variant. So I suppose rather than focusing on why we got here, let's talk about how we deal with what is here. How do we, the general public, know what we have, what we don't have, what's flu, what's RSV, um, and and what medical attention to seek. Yeah, and here it's really important and there are little, you know, differences, you, I suppose, nuances between all of these viruses. So a lot of viruses that are circulating now are like rhinovirus and enterovirus. So these are the viruses that cause the common cold. So with that, you're just literally going to have that runny nose. You're not really going to have a very high fever and you're just going to, you know, be stuffed up and it'll be quite localised. If you then develop kind of runny nose and it develops into a dry cough and you're having kind of fever, body aches, um, muscle and joint pain, that really is indicative of flu. Um, RSV, and I suppose a myth is that it only affects children. Actually, there's been a lot of hospitalizations in the over 65s and there's been nursing home outbreaks of RSV recently. So it does impact all age groups, but just more predominantly the younger and older. Um, But that causes, you know, a lot of lower respiratory symptoms. So a really dry, irritating cough and you can get difficulty breathing with that, which typically peaks on day three to five. You can get a fever with it, but it's more likely to, you know, be a little bit lower than it would be with flu. Um, And then obviously COVID keeps changing its presentation. So it's really hard to say, but I have heard kind of experts say at the moment that it's presenting with a lot of sinus symptoms um, and nasal, you know, and throat, upper respiratory problems. So there is little differences between them Um, in terms of treatment without a shadow of doubt, like we have to use vaccination where we can. So we don't have a vaccine for RSV, but we do for flu. And for children, you know, they're literally in classrooms now back to school after the winter break, after mixing with different groups of people, you know, family, friends and smaller different circles. And now all of those circles are basically being united in a classroom. And so the potential for spread is huge because the potential for exposure has been huge. The weather is still cold, you know, in general, the you know, the kids are indoors if it's raining, they can't go out for their yard time. And it's just, yeah, it is unfortunately a breeding ground for viruses because they spread 
you know, in the air basically for up to a metre. And when you've got 30 kids in a classroom, it's hard for that not to happen. So really important for people to keep kids home. That'd be the biggest thing if they have any symptoms. Now, I just as a mother myself want to emphasise that, you know, you don't have to keep your child home if they have you know, a dust allergy or a chronic cough that's related to asthma or an infection that they had four weeks ago. Those kids are not infectious and are absolutely fine to go to school. What about a runny nose? A runny nose. Um, up until last week, we said that the advice from the CMO was a runny nose plus any other symptoms such as cough, fever or unwell, feeling unwell would be stay at home. Whereas now the CMO has made a statement to say any symptom Um including runny nose, need to stay home if it's new, really, is the, I suppose, part that I think is important. So if your child develops a new runny nose, um, it is recommended and requested and advised that you keep that child at home for, you know, basically 24, 48 hours to monitor to make sure it's not going to be flu or RSV to try and dampen down the spread. I'm so triggered by all this. This is just like COVID the return. I think we thought we could just package that all up in a box and do away with it. And now we're talking symptoms, stay home, spreading. We never really thought that meeting over Christmas and going back into a classroom was a chance for germs to spread. Not in a very big societal let's have a talk about it way. And I think it always has been an issue, but because of the level circulating, it wasn't as much of an issue. And I think we absolutely all have PTSD. I am like yourself, you know, making charts and looking at stats and just absolutely allergic to the thoughts of it. I I don't want to be here either, you know. Um, And I think that's in a way, understandably, a difficulty because there is, you know, a very... Um, I suppose, attractive option of keeping your head down and ignoring what's going on. But I don't think that's in the interest of public health. I think for public health, we just have to keep going. We have to keep our heads, you know, above the sand and realise that there is a problem. And it's the effect on the health care system, isn't it? Which is really buckling. It's the front of all the papers all week, the hospitals, the GPs. They're all at absolute breaking point. And You representing pharmacists want to try and ease that pressure. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so on the 16th of December, I wrote to um, the incumbent at the time, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, um, about proposals that I felt would make a huge difference to the burden on the healthcare system, particularly in primary care. So that is basically the care that happens in the community. Um, But that then would have a knock on effect on secondary care, which is care that happens in a hospital setting. So what I proposed, I suppose, was a two prong system where we would introduce a minor ailment scheme for pharmacists to be able to provide medical card patients with their over the counter remedies that are on an approved list like they do in the UK. Um, on their medical card, because currently, if I'm working in the pharmacy, I could have a private patient come in and say, "Okay, um, I want to get a particular treatment for head lice for my child or to use maybe a better example, you know, um, esomeprazole for my stomach, a simple little condition or paracetamol or whatever it may be, pain relief. There's actually so many um, gaviscons. There's loads, loads of options to choose from that they use in the UK. But that patient, private patient comes into me, they pay the full retail price and they leave and that's fine. If I have a medical card patient come into me, 
and you know they don't they have say in this example a medical card because they don't have um i suppose extra money to be able to spend um on wellness if you want to call it that because once things move away from prescription people start to think, well, it's a choice. But really, it shouldn't be a choice about using simple symptomatic relief in the community. That should be what we're trying to encourage. But that patient comes in to me and I will make a recommendation. And because they're a medical card patient, they will then have to go to their GP and request a medical card prescription to get that item. And it's a complete waste of resources, you know, and we see a lot of that in the community. Whereas if we were able to, you know, supply that medication on the medical card in the pharmacy setting, it would completely eliminate that need. So that's one aspect of it. The second aspect is patient group directives. So. Ultimately, you know, I think in other countries, pharmacists are being used as prescribers um, really, really successfully. And I have an awful lot of evidence to back that up, um, which I'm sure I'll be continuing to share on my social media. Uh, So New Zealand, Canada, the UK. Um, Here in Ireland, there is a piece in the legislation in the Medicines Act, which was changed to allow the administration by pharmacists of medication. So the administration is the key word. So we can administer medical medication to you in a certain circumstance, but we can't supply you with medication for you to administer yourself. Right. That is the key point. And that is what I am looking to change. And if we manage to change that, we could then very, very rapidly. I mean, tomorrow, pretty much, you know, within a few a few short weeks, certainly have a patient group directive up and running. And that would that's basically a document and a protocol that facilitates the supply of a prescription only medicine to a particular type of patient. Um, so it would be defined in the protocol who we can supply with the medication, um, who we should refer And, you know, basically what we can give them. So a good example is an antibiotic eye drop for a child with conjunctivitis. By removing all of these kind of minor um, clinical decisions from GPs, we're allowing GPs to have basically room on their appointment list for patients who really, really need them. Because at the moment in my own pharmacy and through my social media, you know, as particularly on Instagram, I've been sharing a lot of horror stories where people have been waiting a week and ended up having to access A&E because they couldn't get something that could have been treated by their GP seen to. And it's just the system is broken. We need solutions at this stage. And pharmacists are a wasted resource in many ways. I mean, they're working within the community. You're trained to do far more than just fulfil a prescription on a page. You have all that wealth of knowledge. So why not put it to use? I don't know. And for me, I find it particularly insulting, I think, because I worked in this role in the UK. So obviously, I'm a third generation Irish pharmacist. My granddad, dad and my brothers are all pharmacists. So I live and breathe pharmacy. But I went and studied in Robert Gordon University in Aberdeen and We were very well clinically trained, as are my peers who've been trained in Ireland. And over in Scotland at the time, we were actually implementing and supplementary prescribing. So I was fulfilling that role when I was a newly qualified pharmacist in Scotland. Yet here, I would never have imagined that 15 years later, I'd be here talking to you about this. It's a disgrace, you know. And pharmacies, most of them now have a room where you could actually sit and spend some time with somebody because people might find it hard to get their head around it just because it's so new. We go to the GP, we sit in front of the GP, we give them their symptoms, they give some advice, they write something down possibly and we leave or they suggest over-the-counter medicine. For this to happen in a pharmacy would kind of blow people's 
minds a little bit, but it's very doable, isn't it? Yeah, and I think attitudes have changed. Like there's been a lot of surveys about patient trust in pharmacy and their community pharmacists. You have to remember that when the pandemic kit, kit, kicked in, community pharmacies were the only aspect of healthcare that had an open door. Never once did we close, despite the fears of myself, my staff and for my family. I'm immunocompromised. I came out of hospital in March 2020 after being in there for nine days with flu and the very next week in the heights of the pandemic. I was there, you know, serving my patients. We did not close our doors and we in pharmacy have vaccinated over one million patients for COVID. Um, GPs have, you know, obviously played a huge role, but they can't do everything. Their numbers. I really want to emphasise here that pharmacists and GPs have a very close working relationship and that is absolutely integral to our healthcare system. Um, we really value the work that they do and all we want to do is support them to see the patients who need to see them the most. Like when you think that there's only 15% of GPs working in rural areas and then you compare that to the fact that 85% of the population live within five kilometres of community pharmacy. Like it just makes sense. This is about the patient. This is about access to healthcare. Pharmacists are skilled and competent. There is no question of that. There's evidence to prove that. All we need now is the political will to enable us to do our jobs. So you mentioned writing to Leah Varadkar and that this could possibly kick in tomorrow. There's going to need to be legislative change. That kind of thing doesn't happen overnight. It's so frustrating. Yeah, and normally I would agree with you. And I know that my peers um, in the Irish Pharmacy Union and the Pharmaceutical Society, I know, look, there's a lot of people who have been trying to work through the political pathways to make this happen. And look, maybe I, because I'm not involved in those groups, um, and I actually think people need this now. I think this is an emergency. We've seen emergency legislation come in before, and I won't accept anything less. I am determined that the patient's needs are met. And I I was disappointed to see that my letter, basically we got a, report, a reply from Leo Vradker's office to say that it had been forwarded to Stephen Donnelly. We've sent him three emails. I've had no reply I then sent him an email requesting to meet if that would be more convenient for him. Um, still haven't had a reply. I, that That's what I suppose prompted me to start the petition because I think that, peop, you know, the government need to see how much public support. Yeah, there it is. has to be grassroots. We find this time and time again. And it's really disappointing to have a medical professional as our Taoiseach and our health system worse than it's ever been before. It's a real Indictment, and and you're right. We can pull together emergency legislation when when we need it. You're talking about public support. Do you have pharmacists' support? Yeah. I mean, are some of them thinking, "Oh God, we're already flat to the mat with work. Are we going to have a queue of people round the corner trying to get to see us?" Yeah, absolutely. So I've been talking to an awful lot of my pharmacy colleagues about this, and. Um, in depth and a lot of them, you know, have shared it on their social media. I would say that 99% of the people I have spoken to are really hungry for this because a lot of them are young pharmacists and a lot of them know that they have the skills. So the only, I suppose, look, pharmacists have had a battering. We didn't close our doors during the pandemic. We're all exhausted and we're absolutely bogged down in, I'm going to say, pointless administration from the HSE. Um, it's a waste of our skills. And I think if you put something to a pharmacist who's working in that environment, you know, they're going to be a little bit hesitant. There's only a handful who've made that point. 
And I would say that at the moment what's happening is a patient is coming into our pharmacy. They're asking to speak to the pharmacist. We're always available. So we're going out and we're listening to their symptoms. We're, you know, assessing them clinically. We're telling them what's wrong with them and what they need to do. And we're doing all of that already. So why instead of at the end of the conversation saying, now go to your GP and get a prescription, can we not say, and now here's that antibiotic I was telling you about. Use it one drop four times a day, etc. Like we are already doing the work. This is about what's important for the patients. So it's not about pharmacists, you know. Sheena, I absolutely love your spirit and I, I, you're like a dog with a bone there and you're right. Everything you said, it's so simple and why do we make it so complicated? Where can people find out more and, and support you and sign the petition? Yeah, so the petition is up on change.org. The, probably the easiest place at the moment to find it is on my social media. So at Wonder Baba Care on Instagram. It's there in the highlights and in the bio. I'll be constantly sharing it. There will be a link up at the top of our website, Wonder Baba. So W-O-N-D-E-R-B-A-B-A dot I-E up on the website there as well. Um, and I just really encourage people to share it. Um, I want to thank my pharmacy colleagues who've been such a huge support um, because I've gotten wealths of information, even from pharmacists in the UK who want to come home that won't because they're disheartened by what's going on and they're sending me information about what they're doing over there. And then also I've had so many GPs get in touch and be such a big support and say that the introduction of, you know, the free medical cards to the the children, the under sixes, and now the expansion of that, they're talking about bringing on 400,000 more medical cards. The GPs are swamped. They need our help. And, you know, we're not encroaching on their space. We're trying to make more of their space. Well, I know you have a number of big meetings set up. Let's keep in touch and revisit this. Pharmacist Sheena Mitchell, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. My next guest, Dr Yolanda Coombs, has many roles, one of which is as a transformation specialist. Her interest in people's behaviour started with studying how environments affect physical and mental health and the impact this has on work and society. She now helps leaders and teams to better understand their own and others' behaviour. Over the past 35 years, she's worked for international organisations such as the World Bank and the World Health Organisation, as well as coaching senior leaders in businesses and governments in Europe and Africa. She has a master's and a PhD and is the author of several books and peer-reviewed publications. She joins me on the line now. Yolanda, I I hope there's very little on your New Year's resolution list this year. You've achieved a lot. I hope rest is up there at the top somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) That's very kind to say. I think I'm one of these people who's a lifelong learner and and like yourself, I'm very interested in wellness in all its forms. And so um, I was listening to your show last week and I think I I took on board the idea of setting an intention. And so maybe one of the intentions for me is to have a little bit more fun and a little bit more playtime this year. Yeah, that's a really good one because I I think sometimes we forget that, particularly when you're asked, what what do you want for a new year? We tend to go to work first and, and professional goals that we want to set for ourselves. And I, I know that on the one hand, you spend quite a lot of time if you are in the working world in your job, but there's so many other facets to our life and to our wellness. Absolutely. And I think one of the issues that we see these days is that there's such an integration between work and home life. And, you know, we used to be able to compartmentalize a lot more. So if work wasn't going well, we could focus on home or family or other relationships. 
But now everything is so intertwined and it makes, particularly since the pandemic with hybrid working, it's very difficult to separate these things out in that way. And I think uh, that makes it much harder for people. Do you think there's such a thing as a work-life balance? It's a really interesting question. I would have said probably um, 20 years ago when my children were small, that's what I was striving for. And it got to a point in my career at the time and I finally left because I couldn't achieve a work-life balance. And I remember having an exit interview and at the time, I'm not sure I'd heard this term, but I remember saying, you know, the problem is not for me to try and find balance. The issue is I need to be able to integrate them more. So, you know, I want to be able to go and watch my son play soccer in the middle of the afternoon and then perhaps work in the evening. And at the time where I was working, it was all about face time in the office. Um, you were being paid for the hours you were, you were supposed to show up. And I don't think that works particularly for women. And do you think we have a more open society now where we can still say those things, particularly um, as a parent? Do you think it's okay in the workplace to say, I'm going to head to a a soccer match and I'm going to work through the night? You hope that the new hybrid way of working has brought that in. But I kind of fear post-pandemic that we've gone pretty much back to the way we were before. Well, I I do think that's the case in some businesses and organisations. I do think they have gone back. And I think that one of the difficulties that we see is that people often pay lip service to hybrid work. So they say, yeah, we have a hybrid policy, but you need to be in the office on Mondays and Fridays. Or, you know, you need to be here at these times, in which case that isn't really hybrid because it's just saying you're working from home at set times. And I think, you know, it is one of those things that that there is a little bit of, I don't know whether it's competition, but, you know, that thing you can say to somebody, um, oh, um, can I call you back? I'm just taking my lunch break. And they'll say, oh, lunch break, lucky for you. Love that for you that you've got time for a lunch break. Like what you're doing is something wrong when actually what you're doing is you're recharging and getting yourself ready to work more productively later on in the day. Yeah, and it's a big mindset shift. And look, I I say that we've gone back to a lot of the same ways, but I know there are organisations and businesses up and down the country investing in in wellness and a lot more open to talking about diversity, inclusion, hybrid working and what it means to fully invest in their employees. So, you know, I, I, you know, I say that rather glibly. I, I kind of did a sweeping generalisation, but it's about, I suppose, people's attitudes to honesty and and what we're willing to ask for, for our life in the workplace and and outside of it. And And I think that's really important. What's your advice to somebody at the start of the new year who maybe feels they're not happy in their workplace? Well, I think that there's a word you use there, which I think is really important, and that's honesty. And, you know, we talk a lot about honesty, being real, authenticity, you know, showing up as we, as who we are. And I think one of the reasons why we become unhappy at work is if we are being suppressed or um, made to behave in a way that isn't true to ourselves. And, you know, depression comes from suppression. And, um, you know, so it's really important to make sure that you work 
within a business and an organization where you can show up as your true self. And I think that's what we're seeing as one of the things that um, underpins the, the great resignation or the quiet quitting is that there are more and more people who have realized maybe through what the, the pressing pause during the pandemic that there is so much more to work than just showing up and being told what to do. I mean, one of the things we found um, from, from some work we did for a white paper, uh, um, I worked with the core story. And what we found is that people really want meaning now. They want meaning in their jobs. They want the values that are important to them in their personal life and their home life and the relationships they have. They want to see those values reflected in their work life. And it doesn't have to be that those values are great big lofty things of, you know, we're going to be making the world a better place. But you need to be engaged with your heart as well as your mind. So I think for a lot of people to hear that concept that they can find work. I mean, you say if you can get paid for a job that you would do for free, you're in the right area. That people might struggle a little with that. They think you work to live, you get the money you need to pay your bills and to have this this meaning and purpose is a little idealistic. What would you say to, to people that might feel that way? Yeah, no, I might sound like that, but I think, you know, it's a bit like how we say to the kids when they're doing something, when you're doing a job, do your best, put your best effort into it. And there's a, a great story, I'm, I'm not sure how true it is, but it's a great story, so I'll tell it anyway, of um, during the 1960s when President Kennedy went round NASA. And of course, at the time, you know, there was this big rush to put a man on the moon and to get the first, uh, against, particularly against the Russians, to get into space. And he went round and he was shown around NASA and he met the astronauts and he met the uh, people who were all the engineers and all the scientists. And, and then at one point he was taken into a room and uh, there was a lady who was serving the tea and he turned to her and he said to her, so, you know, what is it you do around here? And she said, well, my job is to put a man on the moon. And that's because even though her job was to serve the tea and empty the waste paper baskets, still part of that bigger purpose, which was to put a man on the moon. Now, I know that's a lofty goal, but, you know, if you work in a company where you feel part of it, where you feel connected, where you're able to express yourself, where you're able to turn up to work as yourself, then it's going to help you, particularly on the bad days and not just on payday. That gave me chills, that story. And it's it's about having that, that self-belief and that purpose within you, really, isn't it? Um, yeah. That you're part of something a little bit bigger. I absolutely love that and never let truth get in the way of a good story. I really hope it is true <laughs> because you would think that the answer was, oh, I just bring the tea and coffee. That, that word just which is still such an integral part of the flow of that organisation. And that's what I thought the lesson was going to be in it. And I think there's so many of us sort of apologise for ourselves. I love Marion Williamson's poem where she says people aren't afraid of what they can't do. And I, I'm, I'm butchering her beautiful words. They're afraid that they're more powerful than they ever thought possible. And, and I think we really disconnect from that at times. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of the reason we disconnect from it is because the culture of the organization or business that we're working in can sometimes go against that and it doesn't allow us to have the meaning. And I think that's why people become disengaged. And, you know, there's been some work done by Gallup over the last few years looking at engagement. And currently in Europe, they um, found that only 14% of the workforce are engaged. So in other words, 86% are not. And a lack of engagement at work causes so many issues. I mean, it, the, the, the global cost is estimated at something between seven and eight trillion dollars from lack of engagement. Because when you are engaged, when you have got purpose, when you have got meaning, you're so much more productive and you get stuff done. And when you're disengaged, uh, at the very uh, low levels of disengagement, where you're kind of like actively disengaged, you are maybe creating or perpetuating a toxic work culture. You're much more likely to be unethical. You're much more likely um, to commit fraud or to cut corners. And so having that purpose is an incredibly important thing that I think a lot of businesses overlook. In, you know, they may have it in the C-suite, but they don't cascade it down and get everybody behind it. And that's what's really important. And so one of the things that we're interested at at The Core Story is helping businesses really develop a sense of kind of, of, of human-centered leaders, of being able to bring more human experiences, bring heart back into the workplace. Because actually, not only is it good for people, it's actually also good for profits. How important is it as individuals that we find out what our meaning and purpose is? We, we spoke at the start of the interview about finding an intention for the new year and, and how you want to feel through the year. Is, is that along a, a similar vein that that's how we should be looking at how we want to live our life? Yeah, I think it is. Because I think that, you know, when we lose sight of, I don't want to say goals, but when we lose sight of what's important to us, that's when we begin to feel lost and that's when we begin to feel disconnected. And if you've ever read any of the books about happiness or how to get a more fulfilled life, nearly all of them agree that what it, it comes down to the quality of your relationship and it comes down to how you want to live your life and what the match is between what you hope for and what you get. And, you know, I think over the last 20 years or so, we've become very kind of obsessed with houses and cars and things and stuff. And actually, that's not what really makes you happy. And that's not what really gives you purpose and meaning. It's about relationships. And it's about those personal relationships. But it's also about work relationships. But it's also about a self sense of achievement. What have I done? What have I contributed? There's some interesting research which has been done with people who are terminally ill. And one of the things that they want to know is that they have some kind of legacy. It might be a legacy through children, but it might be a legacy through something that they contributed to. It doesn't necessarily need to be work, but it might be, you know, coaching the local commodity team, whatever it might be, everybody needs to feel that their life had some meaning. 
And given the amount of time we spend at work, it's why having meaning and purpose at work really does help to spill into other aspects of our life. And I'm conscious then of of people listening that maybe work in the home or could be studying at present. You don't necessarily have to have a job to have meaning and purpose in your life. And I think what you're saying there about having a disengaged employee, you don't want to be disengaged in your life full stop because, as you say, you miss out on all the opportunities to celebrate achievement or to learn from things that don't go as well as you, you might have expected. Yeah, absolutely, Claire. And I think it's one of those things. I I can't remember where I heard this saying, but I love it, which is we cannot build on the success we do not celebrate. And I think that means celebrating all the small things, all the small achievements. Um, if you think about if you think about a small child who was learning to walk, taking those first few steps across the living room. If they took three or four steps and they fell, we wouldn't say to them, well, that was useless. You know, three or four steps. I'm, I'm expecting more. We'd, we'd be celebrating. We'd be cheering. We'd be going, wow, look at you. You've taken your first steps. That's wonderful. And I think what happens as we get older is we begin to say, well, it was only three or four steps. It was nothing. And we forget to take the time to celebrate what we have done, what we've achieved. And I think it's also because we spend too much time comparing upwards. And when you compare upwards, you, you never win because there's always somebody taking more steps than you. But when you compare downwards and you see, well, there are some people who never get to take a single step, then you can celebrate only having taken one. Mm, it's such an important mindset shift. I was kind of posting on social media recently of, you know, the walks I took over Christmas, many that I didn't want to go on that I ended up loving once I got out there. And, and somebody messaged me. Um, she's a previous guest on this show, actually. And she said she started saying instead of saying I have to go on a walk, she now says I get to go on a walk. And that just blew my mind. And it is that that shift in your mindset. And I think we also need to talk more about failure being part of the process because we think and expect everything to be linear, that there's a before and after and you get to a certain place and it's just all success all the way along. But like the analogy you gave of the the toddler, falling is is very much part of it. And I, I think we should talk about the messy middle part a little bit more rather than just the people who get to the top. And, and, and we ignore that they fell many times along the way. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important. I think it's really important for people who are at the top, particularly those uh, business leaders or people in, in, in positions that we all look to, to share the moments that they have fallen. I know I've um, worked with some groups before where I've done some coaching and we start by talking about all the times that we've made mistakes, the problems you know, not not just in business life or work life, but in our personal lives. And you can see it. It's at the opening weekend of a, of a retreat that we do. And you can see that all these people have come on this leadership course thinking that they were going to be told what amazing lives the faculty have had. And when we tell them that between them, we've had so many breakdowns, divorces, um, you know, spells in hospital, uh, being fired, being sued, 
they're amazed. But then what it does is it helps them to understand that when we do talk about the successes, that we're speaking from, you know, a real place, from an authentic place. And that's what I think is missing so much in our lives now. You know, we have the, the, the social media culture where we all post the best sides of us, sides of ourselves, but we don't post the mistakes and the failures. And I think if you're growing up in that environment, it must be incredibly difficult. Yeah, it's it's the, the fake realness that we are surrounded by at the minute. Um, Dr. Yolanda, you're in Kenya at the moment, but you will be returning to Ireland. Will you come into studio because you've many gems and insights to share? I've absolutely loved talking to you today. To find out more about Dr. Yolanda Coombs' work, you can go to thecorestory.com. Yolanda, thank you so, so much. Thank you. And I'd love to come in and chat to you again. Brilliant. Look forward to meeting you face to face. Yolanda, thank you so much. So that's it for Live and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Eva Breen and Hugo De Silva Scott, who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna, Sunday morning at 8 with Benelin on News Talk.